genre. It's Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today, we are continuing our miniseries on the live-action films of Wes Anderson with his sophomore effort, literally, released in 1998, Rushmore. And we have a guest joining us to talk about extracurriculars, unrequited love affairs, and elaborate plays is Austin Yoder. Welcome. Thank you both so much for, for having me. Yeah. I'm grateful to have been invited on before I had to resort to full-on groveling and bribery. So <laughs> wonderful to be with you both. Pretending to get hit by a car. Yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. Whatever I got to do, I'll crawl in through a window <laughs> and I'm here. Great. So so what are your uh, general feelings on, on Wes Anderson as a filmmaker and, and his live action films? I've been a big fan for a long time, growing up wanting to be a filmmaker and kind of haphazardly stumbling across Wes Anderson's films. I was really obsessed with him. It feels like right as I was kind of getting into filmmaking. And so when I can look at the, the films I was making when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, maybe subconsciously I can see some of the influence that Wes Anderson was having on those in terms of my, my attempts at using color and framing and camera movement. So I've been a fan for a while, and I think maybe some of that, like the the urgency that I felt with his films initially has abated a bit as time has gone on, and I've grown as like a storyteller myself. But I'll tell you, I went back to watch this, um, and it had been a couple years since I'd seen Rushmore, and that kind of came flooding back a little bit. Like, I love this movie. Yeah. I'm really excited that I get to talk about this one specifically because my my feelings on it have, have ebbed and flowed over the years, and I've kind of arrived, I think, at a very specific place in terms of how, how I feel about it compared to the rest of his movies, so I'm excited to, to get to discuss it. Awesome. Nick, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on Rushmore? Do you remember seeing it for the first time? I do. I think the first time that I watched this, like Bottle Rocket, was... Uh, the the physical Netflix discs, mm-hmm. the weirdest alien person K Pax way to say <laughs> that. But, uh, the, the, that's what I was using Netflix for for at first in high school. Was I was using it? To, oh, I could finally watch John Woo. I can finally watch Wes Anderson. All the stuff that I couldn't get a hold of. Right. And so yeah, I, I watched it, and um, a memory came flooding back to me. If you're like a specific age or, or a specific kind of indie kid. When I watched Rushmore finally, I was like, oh, this is where the Decemberist 16 Military Wives video was like inspired by. Oh, sure. Yeah. But <laughs> I saw that first. And yeah, like I'm I like I enjoyed it, but I don't think it impacted me the way that I mean, this movie means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe a hyper specific generation of people that I just missed by like five years. Mm-hmm. But upon revisiting it, much like Bottle Rocket last week, 
upon revisiting it for the show, it hit me in a whole new way. And I, I feel like I have a, a much deeper personal appreciation for it than I did even like a year ago. Mm-hmm. For me, much like Austin, I think, you know, the first time I saw this, I saw this in theaters. I was anticipating it. There was something about mm. you know, MTV was marketing it heavily and it had had a super, super minor release in 1998 towards the very tail end of 1998 because the studio uh, touchstone had its first screening and they were like oh bill murray's really good in this maybe we should try and push this out so that maybe we can get a not an acting nomination for him that didn't end up panning out but uh it was released wide in 99 in february and i remember During that period of time, late 98, early 99, there was a lot of Rushmore content coming out from MTV. They were pushing this movie really hard. And I think it was because it was sort of the 90s equivalent of punk rock because it wasn't cool to be sort of like hoity-toity and kind of like you know, artistic and like wear a beret. And like, there was something weirdly punk rock about that in 1990. Yeah. To, to have your favorite thing in the world be school and classes and right, right, right. And so, and so MTV really like dug deep on it. I remember they, um, the, 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 the Max Fisher players, uh, made like, uh, play versions of a lot of the MTV Movie Award movies, like Out of Sight, Armageddon, The Truman Show, which is my favorite of the three, um, and played those at the MTV Movie Awards. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Those are and those are a lot of fun. You can find those online. They're on the Criterion Blu-ray that I was perusing. So Rushmore, like right away, there was something about this kid Max Fisher that I was like, why do I? feel such a kinship with this child um <laughs> this this fellow child you know he was a little older than me at this point i think i was in 99 i would have been 14 and he's 15 so i was a little bit younger and i saw this in theaters begged my parents to see it um i talked about the two screener that was in columbus indiana that i saw x-men at um which was the theater that got all the movies that the that the multiplex didn't want because they were like, well, that's not going to make any money. So the Commons Mall can have it. That's where uh, that's where X-Men ended up, uh, ironically. And it's where Rushmore ended up. And I saw Rushmore opening weekend at this theater. And I was, I, I, I you know, there's, there's a few movies that I saw that weren't like big blockbuster comic book movies kind of thing that I would describe as a religious experience when I was young, but seeing Rushmore was like a religious experience because I was like, Oh my God, like this kid is me because like, I also didn't like school. Like I thought school was a waste of my time. I wanted to be writing and I wanted to be making movies and I wanted to be doing all these things. And school was a thing that was getting in the way of that to me. And in a Mm. lot of ways, I still feel that way. Only now it's work. Instead of (laughs) it's work and earning a paycheck instead of of school. uh, school. But yeah, so there's a lot about him that I found a kinship in when I was young Hmm. and wanted to do things like put on plays. Only my version of that would have been to make movies with my friends. And uh, and I did that. And, you know, I always tend to much like Max, I tend to. You know, and I don't mean to say this in like a way that makes me sound narcissistic, but like I do like I have like people who just sort of like 
move toward me and like I, I i i attract these people toward me and we all like work on projects together and there are often times where i feel like max like walking down a hallway giving direction <laughs> to this person and that person and this person virtually now especially because of like the podcast network and all of that but i still feel that way even yeah, to as, this day as someone who's known you for a long time yeah you very often sometimes accidentally found yourselves in these leadership positions where you're in charge of this little club of artists mm-hmm. or kids and you're like okay we're, we're putting on a show we're, we're doing this project <laughs> yeah yeah so so there's I, I i've always had a kinship with max but like austin said it has ebbed and flows um because you know much like 500 days of summer when you're young that movie rocks your shit <laughs> and then at a certain point you watch it again and you're like oh wow he's an asshole and mm. everything that he's doing is wrong. And it's really you coming to terms with the mistakes you've made as yeah. a person. And then you watch it again when you're older and you're beyond all of that stuff. And you look back at it and you're kind of charmed by it because you're like, yeah, we all made, right guys? We all made these stupid mistakes and had right, to learn yeah. from them. And this, and you realize that the movie is a coming of age film and not a romantic comedy. And then, you know, those things start to like click in your mind a little bit more. And mm-hmm. so that happened to me with Rushmore. That happened to me with 500 Days of Summer. But that happened to me again with Rushmore where there was a period where I was like, oh, Rushmore's overrated. But watching it again this time, I was like, oh, hell no, it's not. This <laughs> it's is... A- it's, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminds me a lot of the public, how our discourse or relationship with movies like 500 Days of Summer or Garden State mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. fluctuate with age. That one I'm I, almost afraid to rewatch, but I will. At some yeah, point, I will. <laughs> well, I, I feel I, the I feel, same way. <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like the um, the backlash to the backlash of Garden State is kind of happening right now, mm. where as the movie's about to turn like 16 or 17, however old it is. Um, people are like, oh, yeah, it was flawed. And and yeah, but like, let's look at the the work that's on display or like how yeah. what a personal story it is. Well, and I know this isn't like, let's talk Garden State, but I, it, it's <laughs> tough to separate the Garden State discourse with just how people feel about Zach Braff. Right. Like he, For he, sure. And so that's that's an interesting one. You guys should do another. I mean, the films of Zach Braff would be a terrible franchiseography oh, series. Oh, man. But... Are there enough? Yeah, I think, yeah, he's directed There's like three. three movies. Three, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just Garden three. State, um, No One Will Hire Me, um, Grandpa's <laughs> Grandpa's Bullen Heist. Yeah, gra- Grandpa Heist Day, yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, I'm I'm interested. So, Scott, you saw this movie opening night when it came to theaters, which would a year after the initial release. Not to jump into the interviewer chair. Nick, I'm interested in when you saw it. Like, where in your, like, Wes oh, Anderson I, journey did you see it? Um, I think I saw them in order. Okay. Oh. I, um, like, I maybe, like, I, uh, the first Wes Anderson movie I ever saw was Life Aquatic in the theater. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and then I kind of went backward and caught up with myself and then mm-hmm. started catching them as they were coming out. But I was definitely, like, the age of Max, if not, like, a year older. I was definitely in high school. Okay. Because, yeah, I – so I was three years old when this movie originally came out. So I oh, okay. <laughs> I saw this movie well after the fact. And in, and the order in which I saw Wes Anderson films was entirely dependent upon what was available at Half Price Books. Sure. Like when I was in middle school and high school, like I mowed lawns to like fuel my DVD habit. Like I shudder to think how much I spent on DVDs during that mm-hmm. time where I would just go and buy them. And so – Hard same. Hard same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the first Wes Anderson movie I ever saw 
was Darjeeling Limited. Whoa. That's yeah, a weird one to Which see is first. a weird one to start with. So I would kind of go to Half Price Books and just peruse the DVDs for an hour. And at that time was very, as I was getting into filmmaking, I was just looking through everything, reading about everything, looking at all. And the Darjeeling poster is just super evocative, Mm -hmm. um, just in terms of color. And you have Owen Wilson's fucked up face. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, I just remember just staring at it for a really, really long time and always thinking like, I just want to watch this movie. I was obsessed with the trailer, like those kink songs, um, this time tomorrow, like I just remember the trailer being so funny. And so that was the first one I watched. And then from there, Royal Tenenbaums, I think, was next. And I don't think I ended up seeing this until after I'd even seen Moonrise Kingdom, which would have been my first Wes Anderson movie in the theater. So this was a pretty late watch compared yeah. to his other movies, which I'm which no doubt affected like my initial <laughs> appraisal of it because there were all these much more intricate. Yeah. I think that's probably a good word. This movie is much more rough around the edges than some of his other movies were. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I appreciated that initially. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was something that I noticed watching it this time is like, I think that as much as I love all of Wes Anderson's movies, I do miss this era of his, like I would love to see him make another movie. That's like, in a Rushmore aesthetic. He, he reminds me a lot of his, his filmography reminds me a lot of the Quentin Tarantino filmography mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we reach this corner, this point in the timeline where both directors sort of leave reality. Yes. And stop making movies about like, you know, I can't imagine a Quentin Tarantino movie where like a character pulls a cell phone out of their pocket. Right. Um, I, I think that ended with death proof. Right. And, I think Wes Anderson feels the same way where now they're they're each going backwards in very different ways and looking into history like <clears throat> men do when they get when they reach middle age. That's true. Yeah, That's it, true. this movie very much. I, I don't know if either you know how old Wes Anderson was or how old he and Owen Wilson were when they wrote this. Twenty seven. OK, I mean, it very much feels like the work of someone in their mid to late 20s. There's yeah. a distinct brand of silliness that is completely absent in his <laughs> later films. Yeah. Which I which I miss. I think like for better or worse, that silliness ship has kind of sailed. Mm. Like for some reason, the moment that comes to mind is I can't imagine a Wes Anderson movie where Bill Murray like blocks that kid's basketball shot while he's on the phone, which is one yeah. of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it's not just the directorial style. It's also the writing. I would love to see him collaborate with Owen Wilson again mm. on a script, which he hasn't done, I think, since. Did he write Life Aquatic with him or... Was Royal I, Tenenbaums the last uh, one? I, I couldn't. I can tell you off the top of my head. Yeah, I can't remember either. His screenwriting credit really walloped me because I had completely forgotten, and he's not in the movie at all. No, yeah. So it it just really immediately made me think about the movie differently and him differently. To be honest, of like, yeah. wow, I wonder how personal of a story this was for him. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's get into it. So Bottle Rocket was an abject failure. It cost four and a half million dollars to make. It didn't even make a million dollars. I mean, it it was just. An absolute like mall rats level failure. Mall rats without having a clerks. Right, right. Mall rats without having a clerks. Exactly. But we talked about it last week. There was that special screening, that screening of Bottle Rocket that sort of jump started Wes Anderson's career because it was a screening of producers with deals at all of the major studios. Martin Scorsese was there. Ben Stiller was there. It was basically like 
Uh, so Sophia Coppola was there. It was basically like Wes Anderson making all of, made all of his connections in one single night mm-hmm. at a at a single Bottle Rocket screening. He met everybody here, and the thing about Bottle Rocket was like it was a failure, but people liked the movie. People who mattered liked the movie, and the failure of that movie, the absolute financial failure, right? It wasn't a hit, but what he had on his hands is arguably better than a hit because what he had on his hands was credibility. Martin Scorsese loved the movie. Sofia Coppola loved the movie. And the studio system at this time in the late 90s was not cool, right? Because you had had these characters coming in from indie film like Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino and Soderbergh who, who were considered cool filmmakers. And they had this guy, Wes Anderson, whose first film was a studio film. You know, that never happens. And so what they what the studio had on their hands was like, oh, we could be cool if we make this guy's next movie. So everyone was chomping at the bit to make his next movie because they all felt like this is our way of getting credibility of like artistic credibility, because like everyone just thinks that we're in it to make money. We need to prove to people that that's not the only reason that we do this, that we do this because we love movies. And so they all sort of were attracted to Wes Anderson because he was he felt like he was part of that brand of, you know, quote unquote, art, auteur indie cool filmmaking. Kids. But he had a different sensibility than all of them because he was not cynical. His hmm. films were very sincere, and in that, studios understood him as a filmmaker much more than they ever did Quentin Tarantino and of that ilk, who were much more cynical filmmakers, right? Um, and that's not something that works in the studio system. So everyone was ready to make this next this next movie. Now, Wes Anderson... When he left UTA, part of his sort of like graduation package was that he had to write treatments for three feature films. And so one of those treatments was Bottle Rocket, which they then wrote right after. And the other two was a film called The Tycoon, which would become Rushmore. Hmm. The Tycoon being sort of a double meaning where it's like about Bill Murray, but it's also calling Max Fisher the tycoon. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's about their relationship and et cetera, et cetera. But that would become Rushmore. And then the third film was a very short treatment for the film that would eventually become The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Mm-hmm. And so he took this Rushmore thing. He called it his school movie. And he was like, this is the one that I want to make met next. And so he and Owen Wilson worked on this script and they sold, eventually sold the, the treatment to Disney through their touchstone banner who gave them the best deal, which is that we're going to double the budget of bottle rocket. You didn't make any money on that movie, but we're still going to give you double the budget because we believe in this movie so much and we believe in you so much. And so they gave them $9 million (laughs) to make Rushmore, which is still like nothing, but it's double the budget of what bottle rocket was i'm shocked that it's only i love bottle rocket but this movie looks way more than doubly as good as bottle rocket does i actually like floored that bottle rocket costs four and a half million i would have put that number significantly lower than that yeah yeah i would have as well the but the thing about about rushmore is that it's not just that it's double the money it's also double the confidence of wes anderson Mm. because while his movie was his previous movie was a flop there were so many times while making it that he was second guessing his his instincts 
as a director. You know, there's a there's a test on the Criterion Blu-ray where they shot a scene from Bottle Rocket in anamorphic widescreen, which is how he wanted to shoot the movie. But then at the last minute, he, because it was like kind of more expensive, he just like was like, I don't know if I'm confident enough to do this. And then he chickened out and didn't do it. Um, And then with this one, because everyone is like, Wes Anderson, you're the guy, you're the guy, we trust you, we trust your artistic instincts. He came into this film a much more confident filmmaker and was... And I think that that's where all of that comes from. It's not that it's such a much more expensive movie than Bottle Rocket. It's that he is confident Mm. and is coming into this being like, no, I'm not going to second guess myself. I'm going to trust my instincts on every single decision, every single creative decision. And that's how we end up with a film like like, uh, Rushmore, which is just an insanely confident sophomore effort about a high school sophomore, uh, which is great. This film was shot in Houston at his own school. They went across the nation, went to England, scouting locations to shoot this movie, and he could not find the school that he had in his mind. And then his mom, he was describing this to his mom one day, and his mom was just like, you're just describing St. John's. Why don't you just shoot it at St. John's? And he's like, oh my God, I am picturing St. John's. And so they just, they shot it at St. John's. And ironically, there was a 10-year reunion at St. John's while they were shooting, which he could not attend because he was shooting Rushmore literally down the hall. That's a flex. No kidding. Also, Wes Anderson being from Texas is the biggest glitch in the matrix possible. No one looks less from Texas than Wes Anderson. Yeah. Yeah, And as we, as, as, as a native Texan, and we, we talked about this in bottle rocket. I think there's something deeply Texan about that. Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, as, as a native Texan myself, (laughs) I, it, it is weird. Well, the more, the more Scott tells me about Wes Anderson, or the more I'm learning by in this series, the more he reminds me of so many people that I grew up with. Interesting. And and yeah. a, a a type of kid that like, you know, listened to the Kinks and had like these artifacts of the past, but found solace in them. And and like, like I I, I was thinking, oh, this is a movie made by and for kids who read a newspaper in high school. Yeah, at the cafeteria. <laughs> And yeah. and I was one of them. And yeah. of yeah, of of like I mean, I got we talked about it all the time in Bottle Rockets. I don't want to go over it again, but like yeah. kind of yeah. re reaching for this Parisian metropolitan vibe. I don't know. It's kind of like the way like kids with TikTok and YouTube now will create an aesthetic that's very different from their own of like mm-hmm. like dark cottage core or like yeah. Ac- academia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Max Fisher was a character that Wes Anderson was determined, determined, absolutely determined to cast an absolute unknown, someone who did not come from Hollywood royalty, someone who was someone they just found and felt like he was looking for someone who is the perfect amalgamation of Mick Jagger and Tom Cruise. That's what he wanted. Max Fisher to be. And so he put it out there. There are 14 casting directors all looking for this, for this Max Fisher. So you're telling me he writes like a semi autobiographical movie. And he's like, for some reason, for this young protagonist, I'm thinking a mix of Mick Jagger and Tom Cruise. Well, the sexiest actor and the sexiest rock star. uh, I mean, that is, that is true. However, in his defense, he is, he, he is, this movie is based on his life. Arguably. However, 
it's also based on a life that he didn't really get to have. Oh, because, boom. bingo. Yeah. Because he wasn't as cool yeah. as he wasn't like people weren't as attracted to him as they are Max Fisher. There's mm-hmm. something magnetic about Max Fisher that Wes Anderson never had. He was just a dork. Right. It, um, it's like that old adage about like a, a director casts a, a more attractive version of himself as his lead. Right. Tim Burton right. and Johnny yeah. Depp. Christopher Nolan and Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. So 14 casting directors all, he was like, look, you guys will will be, able, whoever finds Max Fisher will be the casting director on this movie, right? That's how this is going to work. So he sent it out to every casting director that they knew. They all, they were, they searched through 1,800 kids across England, America, Canada, like everywhere they could think of to find Max Fisher. And then Sofia Coppola, who was now following Wes Anderson because she was at that screening, heard about what he was looking for for Max Fisher and was like, that sounds a lot like my my cousin, <laughs> Jason Schwartzman. And so Jason Schwartzman, who was a drummer in a band, had no interest in acting, but she she was like, I really think you should try this and and connect with this cat one of these casting directors and have a meeting with Wes Anderson. And so she puts in a good word. He has a meeting with with uh with with the casting director and then Wes Anderson shows up very like, oh God, I can't believe I have to waste my time doing this stupid meeting where I'm not really definitely not gonna hire this kid. He's a Coppola. Yeah. Like it's exactly <laughs> what I didn't want to happen. Like a third string right? Coppola, but a Coppola nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. And so then he walks in the room and he's like, God damn it, it's Max Fisher. There right. <laughs> yeah, because you know, you were you were talking uh, just a few seconds ago about the magneticism of yeah. Max Fisher. And there is something magnetic and just un like the, the coolest kind of cool with Jason Schwartzman, mm-hmm. because you can tell he's not trying to be cool. He mm-hmm. just is a Coppola and is a drummer for a band out in California and right. just like is that and like as many people who saw themselves as Max Fisher I think Max Fisher was also like an early crush for a lot of moviegoers oh people, interesting people, people yeah. who found this movie when they were teenagers yeah big yeah. fans of eyebrows mm-hmm. right I would assume. sure <laughs> definitely so he meets Jason Schwartzman and the thing that he's struck by instantly is that Jason Schwartzman handles himself like a grown ass man and he and, and he was like, oh, I had it backwards this whole time. I thought I needed somebody who wasn't Hollywood royalty. I realized I do need somebody who is because those are the types of kids who act way older than they should be. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what yeah. I need Max Fisher to be. And then so kids that grew you know, up with a staff. Right. Of- right. Exactly. <laughs> and so there's an intangible confidence. That yes. Comes, well, yes. call it whatever. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so movie history uh, was was made that day. Um, and sure. uh, he always wanted Bill Murray to play the 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 other character um, in this movie. Bill Murray, of course, as we talked last week, he offered James Conn, Mr. Henry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Mr. Henry role to Bill Murray via his answering machine, mm-hmm. you know, as as uh, Bill Murray has didn't get a bite. However, something was happening with Bill Murray at this time. Bill Murray had had a string of failures. Um, he'd been doing his Bill Murray thing, and people were sort of tired of it, and they could sense that he was tired of it. Well, you know? and when you say his Bill Murray thing, you don't. It's like the old Bill Murray thing because this kind of yeah. invented the new Bill Murray thing, right? The, the, right. the melancholy indie king, right? So this was like uh, the uh, Ghostbusters. You know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, go yeah, that go the Ghostbusters vibe, but he was doing movies like The Man Who Knew Too Little and things like that that were just absolute flops. And 
he was interested in starting to do more drama stuff, more like sad guy stuff, but he wasn't getting offers for that sort of thing. And he got this offer for this Rushmore thing and he read the script and he really, really liked and identified with the character. And so he signed up and said, I'll do it pro bono, which to Bill Murray, pro bono means scale, (laughs) which is funny. So, yeah, so he got he got Bill Murray, which is who he always wanted to to play um, Herman. And uh, Bill Murray on set would do things like he would work with the crew, like he would get show up early and he would haul equipment around with the crew and joke around. And he kept everybody in really good spirits the whole time he was on set. Um, Apparently, he was just like an angel to work with. At one point, there was a helicopter shot that Wes Anderson wanted. And Touchstone was like, we're not spending twenty five thousand dollars on a helicopter shot. Like, come on, man, you don't need it. And Wes Anderson was like, yeah, I guess I don't need it. And Bill Murray was like, do you need that helicopter shot? And he's like, I mean, you know, I don't need it. And and so Bill Murray writes him a check for $25,000, which is more (laughs) than he got paid to be in the movie and gave it to Wes Anderson for that helicopter shot. Wes Anderson never cast the check. He still has the check. And he's like, one day I'm going to cash this, (laughs) but I haven't needed to yet. So... Wow. I'm holding on to it. Um, he ended up shooting around the helicopter shot. I was going to say, I don't uh, remember a helicopter shot, and I feel bad nope. if I don't remember it. There, I mean, there is a helicopter shot <laughs> oh, that's at the end of the movie, good, good but point. not, but probably point. different than he was envisioning for this. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the movie eventually gets released. It makes, I think, $14 million, which is not a huge hit, you know, by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it made more than its budget, and so that was a success, which allowed him to to move on to the next film. And it's cultural. I mean, like we're still talking about it almost thirty years later. Yeah, the cultural relevance of this movie is is insane. I mean, it it is arguably the most iconic movie of of his of his filmography. Now, all like. When I say that, I mean the movie itself is iconic versus like everything else is like, oh, like Royal Tenenbaums. Like, oh, yeah, that looks like Wes Anderson. The Wes Anderson aesthetic is is definitely iconic separate from Rushmore. But Rushmore as a film is like, I think, the most iconic film in his filmography. There's so many images because this is kind of also the first Wes Anderson movie to really make use of montage in a really confident way. Yes. And there's so many images that you're like, you know, like the, the of him sitting by his like little go kart with his helmet and goggles on, mm-hmm. or... which is based on a painting, apparently. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I love when movies do of that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill Murray at the bottom of the pool. Mm-hmm. You know, so many images. That nasty green. Yeah. Pool. <laughs> but yeah, there, there, it is interesting how this is the this weird kind of missing link between Bottle Rocket and everything he did after from an aesthetic standpoint. Yeah. I mean, the use of... I mean, I think Futura's the font, famously, that he, yes. you know, has, has run into the ground. <laughs> I say that in a good way. I, I appreciate it, but in the sense that no one else can really, can really use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is the first time he ever used that. We have the curtains to kind of signify the different sort of chapters of the movie, mm-hmm. so... It it is this weird little like l- like lily pad in his filmography, like leading to what was going to come, and I think that that lends itself to sort of the the iconic nature that you're referencing, Scott. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's something really lovely about like 
we haven't brought up J.D. Salinger yet as like an influence that he may have had. But, you know, Mm -hmm. this movie really reminds me of like reading Franny and Zoe or reading Catcher in the Rye. And those are also like rites of passage of literature that, you know, young people find and either really relate to or like, you know, fuck this. (laughs) Right. But but it's like it's cool that it's become kind of what it it seems to be emulating this like coming of age classic. Yeah. 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 So Jason Schwartzman, he was 17 when he was cast in this movie Mm -hmm. and kind of just naturally a really hairy guy. You know, (laughs) he's got, you know, a hairy chest, hairy stomach, hairy arms, hairy hands. And in order to play Max Fisher, believably as a 15 year old, he had to um, shave and wax all of the hair on his body almost daily and said that it was the worst part about this <laughs> role. He was like the worst part was my hands because they were so dry. All I he was constantly putting lotion on because they were so itchy and dry because you know, he has really hairy hands typically. And so to like shave and wax those every week, it was just it was a lot. It was a lot. I think about what actors do to their skin a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see how he could have channeled some of that angst into the performance, though. I mean, oh, for sure. Just, oh, just yeah. sort of, that just pissed me off so much to have to, <laughs> to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's break it down, Nick. Yeah. The movie has a very memorable opening. It's, it's I don't know, it's in that really short, rarefied list of like iconic introductions to a character and a performer at the same time. Yeah. You know, I don't want to try and pull other movies out of my ass right now, but you know, like the, this is the hardest math problem that, you know, if you guys solve it, you never have to pick up a, well, Max could do it. And like holding down the knees, did someone say my name? Like, I, I, like <laughs> I, I forgot that's literally the first scene, his first line in the movie. Yeah. And it's just so it's the character in a nutshell. He's fantasizing about solving the hardest geometry problem in the world and everyone in the school loving him for it. The, the thing that I love about that, too, is that he's a terrible student. So, like, the oh, things yeah, that he's interested in isn't even – they're not academic, right? And so they're, they're like, purposefully extracurricular. Like, they're, yeah. they are non, completely non-academic. So the thing – he daydreams all day about, about these, these dreams that he has, about all of these accomplishments that he wants to have in his life. But the thing that he dreams about at night is being a good student. And I find that – kind of charming like it's really no, like yeah. this character in a nutshell it's really beautiful because it's like he it's immediately without even like with revisiting the movie you find that that's an insecurity of like, right because we see that he's so bad at all these grades and all at school but he seems he tries to act like it doesn't affect him like he's too good for school but it really is like an insecurity for him that he's not he can't do it all that he's he's not a good student right yeah i love how kind of subversive that first scene is in the sense that Wes Anderson kind of dangles this sort of cliche in front of us, the idea of the unsolvable math problem. And it, it brings up like Goodwill hunting and stuff where if you haven't seen this movie before, it's almost an eye roll moment. Yes. If you don't know that this first scene is a dream to think like, OK, like we're, we have this sort of classic trope. Yeah. And so to then like immediately subvert that I is just such a charming way to start the movie. Yeah. You know, I coincidentally yesterday, like right before watching this movie, I watched this video essay about the book of Henry. Oh, my word. <laughs> and and that is another like quirky kid who's like wise beyond his years movie. 
Right. And watching the way that Wes Anderson handles Max and the way that Colin Trevorrow and the screenwriter handle Henry, it's very different because Henry is like, there's a scene where he like beats the cafeteria lady at a game of chess. Like, you know, like, oh, move it this, I'm, I'm, I'm done now. And, you know, just like, they never, like Henry never feels like a real character because they never show his insecurities or what he's afraid of or what right. is what he fails at. And this movie watching it when you're older it paints a very sober view of max like max isn't a perfect right. kid he makes mistakes he can be really creepy and right flawed but yeah. but the movie never rewards that behavior yes. it's always yeah. instantly mm. like that's the thing i think why i i always in my memory i would remember this movie and be like oh i bet women really don't like this movie i bet this is more of like a, a like a guy movie like like your 500 days of summer like indie wish for and kind of yeah yeah and then and then i i watched it when i watched it last night i was like oh you know no because all of the women in this movie are treated with so much respect and are are treated with so much like like they are in control of their story right and and it's not like they're hanging on every word of his or just only reacting to him they're doing their own thing and he just keeps shoving himself into their lives and their reaction is very natural and very like not like oh max you're yeah oh silly old max like you know doing your thing again and it's always just like what the fuck are you doing you idiot like it's it's a lot of that which which and it's not in the way that judd apatow does it which is like he treats he he has these coming of age movies where these man babies like come in and they're like oh the women in my life like they're just so bossy and blah, blah, but you know i guess they're right but they don't have to be such a fucking nag about it like that's like the judd apatow school of this and then here it's like no they're just right like, they're not naggy about it. It's just like, no, they're just right. And I love that about it. You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because I was so excited that I was going to get to come on and talk about this. And it had been a couple of years since I watched it. And there was a moment before I watched it again where I was like, oh, this movie could be really problematic. Like, I felt that mm -hmm. concern of like, I'm remembering all the things that happen in this movie. And I'm really worried how this is going to age. But mm -hmm. the both genuine consequences and genuine growth that we see mm -hmm. from Max really like sidesteps any of those issues in like a really elegant way. We're introduced to Herbert Bloom. Is the first name Herbert? <laughs> yes. Uh, His last I have Herman. Herman. Her yeah, Herman, Herman Bloom. Uh. I remember Bloom because it's spelt so interestingly. I've never seen Bloom spelt like that before or again. Uh, like <laughs> like Plume with a B. And he oh. he's the chapel speaker. And he gives this speech about like, hey, fuck the rich. Take what you can out of them. They'll grow back. And Max is at his notes is like, this is the best chapel speaker ever. And he like give, gives him a standing ovation when everyone else stands up to pray. It's great. And I remember that feeling of when you would see an adult and be like, this guy, this guy has got it figured out. That's. Yeah. Yeah. But of no, course, figured out in such an ironic way. Because we found out he's worth like ten million dollars. Oh, like he, right. He's yeah, a yeah. total rich boy himself, and Max basically tells everyone that he is. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Like mirrored. Yeah. Like a rich, the rich person who kind of sees himself as this still blue collar person who you know scrap you know boot scraps or whatever. And then the mirror image is a is a kid who is trying to elevate himself and is ashamed of his blue collar working class reality. Mm -hmm. right? Calls his father a neuro, a neuro, uh, like a doctor, a surgeon. Yeah, despite <laughs> despite him just being a barber. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people make that mistake. <laughs> oh, that's such a good line. Such a good line. Oh, such yeah. a good oh, line. Man. 
yeah, we'll get it. So I, I, while we're while we're talking about him, yeah. uh, Seymour Seymour Castle, they dressed him as because like one of the major influences on this movie was the was Peanuts. They dressed Seymour Castle as Charles Schultz. Oh, Charles wow. Schwartz, oh, Schultz was known for wearing like that same jacket and the 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 spectacles yeah. and like all of that. That that they he's basically cosplaying as Charles Schultz. And Charles Schultz's father was a barber, and hmm. uh, Charlie Brown's father was a barber. And so there's a lot of Peanuts influence in this. And really, if you think about it, a lot of Peanuts influence in Wes Anderson's work as a whole, which is all done in, you know, what, like Peanuts is like single shots, you know, yeah. move camera moving left to right, you know, um, and like kind of very much, you know. Yeah, like, like, yeah. like earnest, wise beyond its years, quiet. Yes, yes. Um, there's even some Vince Giraldi trio rocking at the end of the movie at Christmas time through the speaker. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, I had no idea. That's really cool. Big surprise for the movie. I had forgotten completely, ladies and gentlemen, Brian fucking Cox. I had forgotten yeah. too. I think this was the first time I ever saw Brian Cox in something. Wow. I think it was this. I don't, I don't think I'd seen him in anything. You know, after this, you have X2. He has that kind and... of career where it's like, who knows? Like, I want to say, right. it was, for me, it was X-Men 2 because that's when I was like, oh, that's Brian Cox. But he yeah. could very well have been in a movie that I watched hundreds of times as a kid. You know? Was, yeah. he, was he the dad in The Rookie? I'm trying to figure out the first. Oh, with Dennis is Quaid? He, yeah, is he Dennis Quaid's dad? That's I've a very never, specific. I mean, that was. I've seen it. I watched yeah. that movie a lot as a kid. <laughs> I've heard it's really good. Yeah. I've heard it's like one of the better Dennis Quaid movies. But Brian yeah. Cox was hired because Wes Anderson loved his take on Hannibal Lecter. Great. I, I don't know why. <laughs> it's such a weird, yeah. a weird reason to hire him for this yeah, particular like role. Nineteen-year-old yeah. Wes Anderson at a mall watching Manhunter. Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> Someday he will play a principal <laughs> in a movie of mine. Uh, yeah. He's great in this. Like, I think he may he, he may only be like in ten minutes of the movie, but he he's. He he really walks that line of being like so like you can feel the history radiating. He's been dealing with this kid since he was like five. You know, oh man, and that like, line of like he's one of he's one of the worst students we have. <laughs> it's so it's iconic, iconic delivery, and it's a really fun like I can imagine reading the script for the first time and being like, oh, that's fun. Like, yeah, he's a shitty student. Because yeah. he seems like such a Lisa Simpson. He's got it all. But no, he's not at all. He's just really good at making it seem like he's got it all figured out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What's and the secret, Max? <laughs> it's kind of nice, too, that it's not one of those movies where you have an adult who hates a child for no reason. Yeah. Who just like, oh, he's one of those adults who hates kids. But right. like, there are a lot of reasons that. Max is such a thorn in his side. Oh yeah, and uh, I we we get the club montage, which I feel like is another really iconic part and real a real like it reminds me of like the first time you see like a a, a Scorsese tracking shot with like a Rolling Stone song playing. You're like, oh, this is your yeah. jam. You're this, you're going to be <laughs> great at this. Yeah, and it's like the yeah. first time that he does it. This absolutely blew me away seeing this in theaters. Um, I was flabbergasted by it because to be you know as i talked about a little bit um in last week's episode i just didn't know you could make movies that look like this like <laughs> i was like why how do you 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 can make a movie that doesn't look like a movie like you can make a movie that looks like shots from a yearbook or like a play, a play. yeah yeah the, like how what like it was just, it just felt like it was breaking all the rules to me yeah in my mind. there's a style and a confidence that isn't unlike scorsese and 
like, but the comedy comes from the, it's like the, the streets of like the mean streets and the back alleys of New York for Wes Anderson. It's like a prep school. Yeah. And the honesty and the style is there as well, but it's just, there's something inherently funny about just how. Oh, hearing some wonderful jokes out of that montage. I still laughed out loud at that cut to the debate team with all four of them just angrily yeah. pointing and screaming at each yes. other. <laughs> just we don't hear any of the sound is uh, is a wonderfully funny visual. I I think what I I like so much about it is the choice to make despite him being, you know, 15, right? He's not the oldest kid at this at this prep school, but he is always older than everyone in his clubs. And so it makes <laughs> it makes him stand out as just that much more awkward, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. it, it adds just this little level of like comedy, visual comedy to the fact that he's like half a foot taller than the tallest next kid, you know, in this in these groups. Yeah, just like this outcast of he's stuck between childhood and adulthood. Mm-hmm. where he seems very adult and he has adult interactions with all the adults in his life. But intellectually, he he is still kind of like not that much above Dirk and right. those kids. Yeah. And like I, I yell like watching this now as a 29 year old, I'm like, God, this is absolutely who I was or how I saw myself in high school, which is like this kid trapped in an adult body that or an adult trapped in a kid body that had all these clubs and took it all really seriously and was yeah. probably like, I can imagine like the contempt that teachers felt when they saw me walking towards them with like, God, what's he going to fucking, what, what problem is he going <laughs> to hand me today? Well, I don't, I don't remember. I don't know if we've ever talked about it on franchiseography before, but one of my favorite things about you as like the character of Nick Jimenez mm-hmm. is that you worked for your local newspaper reviewing movies as a child to the, b- before you could even see rated no. R movies. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, like that is the most Max Fisher shit I've ever heard of my life yeah we're like uh, yeah i i just i emailed them because they didn't have a film critic at like the age of 12 and then like they just hired me and i used to be allowed to watch r-rated movies but then i gave fahrenheit 9 11 an a and <laughs> the, i got a, we got a lot of angry letters from like the p- kids the parents in my text town and my editor i remember was like i don't know what to do nick like my hands are tied like they want we can't let you review r-rated movies anymore and i was like god these fucking <laughs> mouth breathers <laughs> so well, uh, yeah a perfect but, movie for that yeah, I I do. I picture you when when I picture that you you're viewing these things. I picture twelve year old Nick in a blazer with like a like a saucer of like Tea, espresso. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and your little notebook, writing your notes, drinking your espresso, watching like while Siriana. Watching oh, yeah. I, I was picturing just a full on cigarette, just yeah. like yeah. mom and dad like knocking on the door, like you're like, yeah. let me finish. And like, yeah, and like the, the the warmth, but also, yeah, the exasperation that Mr. Guggenheim has for Max is like, yeah, God, those were teachers that I had probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've you've written characters very similar to to Mr. Cox. Uh, or in yeah, this, in this I think movie. so. I have. Yeah. The kind yeah. of mentor. And you, what, what you said earlier, Austin, about like you when you asked how old Wes Anderson was or Owen Wilson was at the time and they were 27. And like, yeah, I feel like I'm still when I'm writing now, I'm in high school world because that's the only that's the period of my life that I can see the most clearly now mm-hmm. is I can't write about characters my age yet because I'm still in that period. Mm-hmm. But like, that's where I find myself looking back, like regrets <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. With sudden death, academic probation. I really enjoyed uh, him reading a Jacques Cousteau book in the library. Mm-hmm. That was really it's like cool. a 
like a like a like a uh, uh, call call <laughs> uh, what is it calling the shot? You know, like yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Or like when you where we're going next, you know how like they hide a Pixar character from the next Pixar movie inside yeah. the current Pixar movie. Yeah, it reminds me of um, uh, in the Mall Rats commentary. They're like, we're we'll we'll see a we'll see a next on the set of Dogma. And like yeah. they didn't shoot Dogma next, they shot Chasing Amy next, but they didn't know that at the time. <laughs> right. And that's what this reminds me of. It's like, we'll see you next time on the Life Aquatic with Steve Zuzu. Whoops. Oh wait, no, you won't. That's the fourth one. <laughs> that's yeah. all at sea. <laughs> yeah. We need to get nominated for Best Picture first. <laughs> uh, I love the play rehearsal for Serpico. Oh, oh my god. It, yes. <laughs> it's great. And it's it's really fun. It's really funny, and the visuals are really funny. And like funny in like a like a Ben Stiller way, you know, like in a not. But also it's so telling so much about the character where Max isn't comfortable writing about his reality or getting really personal with his work. He's more comfortable doing these big grown up 70s film, you know, to show how mature he is. And like there's something just so perfect about that. Yeah, yeah there's a nice little bit of editing in that scene where. We see the little kids, and then we see that just wonderful shootout through the window. And I think, like you, you would, your first thought would be, okay, shoot out through the window, and then cut to kids. Like that's mm-hmm. a funnier cut. But there's something about kids then cutting to the window that, for like it, it wouldn't be my first thought of what to do in that scene. But it was even funnier to me that the kids were already established before we saw like this just like haze of gunfire (laughs) and it's the sets are so elaborate like the train is insane oh yeah Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah and this is right at ripped right out of of his real life scott right is he staged right yes yeah yeah as we talked about last week he had that deal with his with his teachers of a point system where if he just did his schoolwork and paid attention in class he would deserve he would get one point a day and once he collected enough points, he would be allowed to put on a play for the school. Um, oh, and amazing. that's how they got him to pay attention yeah. in school. And you can imagine and get good grades. Like Mr. Guggenheim and Max having that conversation. Yeah. Of, yeah. Like a, just trying to wrangle this energy that this mm-hmm. kid has. Uh, well, so there's a scene where like he goes home, he goes to work with his dad at the barbershop and they're walking home and they're, they're opening the door and the dad says like, Oh, like you're just, you know, you're like the guy from the story, Max. You're in love with the sea. And Max says, yeah, but I've been out to sea a long time. (laughs) And it's like, whoa, that's, but like now I can't stop thinking about how much that looks like a shot from a Charlie Brown special. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just following the, following them and then holding. And like, that's like, you could hear Charlie Brown even saying that line where it's so sad, but coming from. Absolutely. (laughs) The, the crazy thing about this movie, you know, being shot in Houston is that, at no point, I think because they shot it in the winter, they started shooting it in November. Mm. At no point does this movie ever look like Texas, right? I mean, it mm. does because it was shot there. And if you're a Texan, you know what Texas looks like mm. in the winter. But to most people, they think of Texas in like the heat of the summer. Right. They don't think about what it looks like in the winter. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this sort of ethereal place right. um, that could be anywhere. Definitely. And I really love that about the movie. Yeah, yeah, but though the the the, the dreariness, yeah, the greatness yeah. of a Texas autumn and winter, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. We meet Olivia Williams, 
playing Mrs. Cross mm-hmm. or Miss Cross. Right. Olivia Williams, fresh off of uh, the very disappointing The Postman, which was her oh, debut my gosh, as an actress. You're right. Yeah. That was her debut as an actress, and she hates the movie and has always looked back on it uh, as like one of the biggest mistakes of her career. As a starting point, mm-hmm. it was just she had a terrible time on it. She thinks the movie's awful. Mm-hmm. She met Wes Anderson at like some sort of like party thing, and as soon as he met her, he was like, "You should be." You should be the teacher. Mm-hmm. Like you have exactly the right. There's there's something very approachable about you that doesn't. You're not like this like unapproachable beauty. You are a very approachable woman. You're young and you're British, which he felt he never wrote the character as British, but he was like, oh, Max would love that she's British. Mm-hmm. There would be oh, like yeah. it would be like this extra sort of like. Yeah, uh, can, uh, Mary Poppins quality yeah, to her that he would really like. Absolutely imagine like this kind of 17 year old boy being completely bewitched by like this woman in his life. Yes. Of like, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. Miss Honey is like it, it, it not too far away because it is a little bit stylized, a little bit like she's a character out of a book, but she mm-hmm. brings this reality to her. This like she feels like a real person. And it's so funny that you say Miss Honey because one like uh, uh Wes Anderson's favorite author is Roald Dahl. Sure, yeah. Um that is his absolute favorite author. It's 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 where his art style largely comes from. It's like those old Roald Dahl books. Um I'm I'm not I'm not sure who that artist is, but it's like, usually Quentin Blake. Quentin Blake. Yeah. So so yeah, so he bases a lot of his art style comes from Quentin Blake. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Uh, I love, yeah, their first scene on the bleachers is is really great. Like, mm-hmm. he's she's smoking. I don't know if that's like just me in twenty twenty one being like, oh my god, I can't believe she's smoking right in front of her, her <laughs> student. Uh-huh. Uh, he saves the Latin department. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes by trying to kill it. Yeah, he uh, he 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 saves it, and then you see that it's like now a requirement, and the Scottish kid is like, "Good fucking work, yeah." Yeah. <laughs> I saw a letterboxd review that described this movie as like a 90s Nickelodeon cartoon shot in live action. <laughs> and moments like that like really made me think of that of like yeah. you could imagine these it, you know a little bit like, almost like Napoleon Dynamite where they're stylized and it feels like animation props alive. I'm I'm yeah. meaning that in a positive way by the way. Listen. It has <laughs> a, an adventures of Pete and Pete quality to it. That's even better. Yeah. 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 It's Absolutely. God, you almost like what a world where that happened instead, where someone was like, you want to do a Nickelodeon show, Wes Anderson? Do you want to like <laughs> show run this? Yeah, uh, we meet Bill. <laughs> we go to the basketball, uh, the, the wrestling match and Bill Murray's like, I n- never in my life could I imagine that I would have sons like these. <laughs> <laughs> they really are the worst. It's, His sons are the worst. <laughs> that's like a, that's a nightmare that I've had is like, oh, what if I did have kids? But like, they're awful people. And like, mm-hmm. I, I can't control that. And they just are, and they just suck. Just do what, just do what Herman does, and just openly hate them. Just like tell everyone how much you hate your kids. The cut when he like reaches back to grab one of them, and then it just cuts right away. Yeah. Um. Oh man, but yeah. So like the scene where where where, where Bloom is talking to Max, and something about Max, uh, her, her, he finds really endearing. Um. Mm-hmm. He's like having the conversation, then he takes off his clothes, and he's like he's an alternate for the wrestling team. Yes. Um, oh, there's I'm that really alternate. sweet. There's that sweet moment where he walks out and he's like, "Good to see you again." See to you. the yeah. to the other guy who just immediately body slams. Him. Yeah. And you, yeah, and that is such a great moment. And really, what I took away from this movie, especially coming off of Bottle Rocket, is 
there is a sincerity to all of his work that mm-hmm. he just can't scrub off. And there isn't like an ironic bone in this dude's body. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes that gets mistaken for hoity toity, like, mm-hmm. you know, cause like, Oh, look at this kid wearing a full suit in a cafeteria. He thinks he's better than me, you know, but right. like, it's, it's just, this is just how he sees the world and how he sees, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I don't think Max Fisher feels that he is better than anyone. Mm-hmm. I just think that he wants to be better than himself. Yes. And I think mm. people misinterpret that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's yeah. why I, I really relate to Wes Anderson as a Texan is like, I, c- I could imagine like being a teenager and being like, God, I hate like, oh, but uh, yeah, I'm not, but I'm not like Texas. Like I'm, I like like Scorsese and I want to go to New York and be a movie, you know, like, yeah, I have to hide where I'm from. I have to hide my accent with this like armor that I create, which I think is something that every teenager or every young person relates to in some way, no matter where they're from. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, yeah. We get the pool scene that we talked about. Yeah. This may be where Bill Murray and we all learned that Bill Murray is like really good at being sad. Yeah. Oh, okay. so sad. Sad on the inside. Yeah. So sad. Just, um, I love in movies in general, just when a character does something so specific like him just throwing golf balls into the pool, just <laughs> yeah. meaning, just meaninglessly. I can think of my own like scripts where I just like, I just want a character to do just this random thing. We're not going to really explain what it is. And yet at the same time, like within that character, it makes the most sense for him to be doing that. Yeah. He's, he has a lot. He reminds me a lot of kind of a darker version of what we saw in Anthony with bottle rocket. Mm-hmm. where you know Anthony and Bottle Rocket talked about feeling disconnected and feeling rudderless, and then he checked himself into the mental hospital. And right. Bloom seems to be similarly unruddered of like, mm-hmm. I feel disconnected from my whole life. I hate my sons. I'm yeah. not happy with my marriage. Well, and, and I think that that's a thing that, you know, not to not to be like, oh, poor rich people. But I do think <laughs> that there's there's a thing that happens when you get to a certain level of, of self-sustaining success where you either do one of two things. You either go the Jeff Bezos route where you're like, I'm going to send myself to space because uh, I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> or you're you're like this and you do nothing. And you're just mm-hmm. like, no matter what I do, I'm going to make money. So like, what what even is my uh, life Yeah, now? he was talking you about know? himself in the chapel speech. Of yeah. Like, he can cut himself mm. and it'll just, the skin will grow back because like he's rich right. now. Right, right. And, and I think that there is, you know, I, I, you know, it's that thing where people say like, oh, how could that person kill themselves? Mm -hmm. They're rich. Like, how would they not be happy? And it's like, well, this is how, you know, is it's like, it's like you, you, you get into the state of like, who even am I at this point? Like, am I just my money? Like, I, I'm not doing anything to earn this anymore. Like there's no fulfillment happening anymore. I think that that's I think it's an interesting th- place to put a character. And and Max even ends up taking Bloom's advice at the beginning of like, yeah, like fuck. take the rich boys down, like get them in your crosshairs and take them <laughs> down. And what do we see Max? I mean, we see in a very literal sense, mm-hmm. Max taking Bloom down um, yeah. as the movie goes on. Not to steal your thunder there, but right. I saw your face as Scott was talking there and I was like, yeah. Nick is realizing exactly what, what I'm I realizing just, right yeah. now. <laughs> and, and in a way he's right. Like, you know, Max ends up not doing anything to Bloom that he isn't able to recover from mm-hmm. right? Um, because he can just sink millions of dollars into these ventures. 
um, <laughs> which is kind of what Max does, where Max takes it upon himself to build Miss Cross an aquarium, like a series of unwanted gifts. And I think the movie knows what this is. And there's a reason we never have any scene remotely suggesting that there's any kind of tension or, you know, between Cross and Max of it's a hundred percent unrequited. And like, it's like, yeah, this is what a, a kid would do because he doesn't know how to make real relationships yet, but he knows how to like do stuff to get mm-hmm. what he wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, their relationship, I was struck this time. Like, I think she feels very motherly toward him. Mm, yeah. And I, I think obviously there's no better example than the whole scene where he's, you know, he comes in through a window and he's in her house, yeah. which juxtaposes so interestingly with her big rant against him, which I don't want to get too far ahead of where we're at, but yeah. And I actually, you know, and to peek forward a little bit into Moonrise Kingdom, I appreciate the way how he lets stuff like sexuality and romance be awkward and uncomfortable because that how it often is a lot when we're growing up, but not a lot in movies. Of course. And the, the idea that when we're that age, like whoever we're attracted to, we don't necessarily know what we do about it. Like we know we have those feelings, but like if given the opportunity, so many of us, I know I think of myself at like 15, I wouldn't have necessarily known how to act upon the things that I was feeling or thinking about. Yeah, certain people. No, I for sure didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and Max kind of gets called on that in such an interesting way of like, what, what's, what do you even want to happen here? And he doesn't really have an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I, I, cause I think his, what, what is ultimately happening with him is that he is seeing her and it's like, he is, he's smitten with her, you know, sort of European sensibilities. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and, but also that motherly thing, because he himself has, yeah, doesn't lost have a mom. His mother. yeah. yeah. We, both, so, we both have dead people in our family. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so I think, I think he, I think that that's where it comes from. I think that's, it's it's that confused feeling that you get where I'm like, am I attracted to this person? Do I want them to be my mom? Because you know, all of <laughs> yeah. your all of your all of your like your feelings are so mixed up yeah. at this age. And especially you know? and you know, and like because we're all three of us are guys, like I think we all we weren't really taught to deal with these emotions in really healthy ways growing up. We Not were at all. we were much more accustomed to the other side of Max's life, the brutality and the bullying and yeah the the ego of like i gotta make stuff and be cool at school and like puff my chest out and i think this movie is of max and bloom learning what to do with all these emotions hmm. inside of them we get luke wilson as uh miss uh, miss cross's like kind of date more even like date more than boyfriend that she takes to go see serpico <laughs> And uh, it, for some reason they end up at dinner afterwards no idea how oh are you oh are you <laughs> amazing <laughs> uh, Luke Wilson's really good in this of like the kind of simmering impatience but you can just tell he's like a decent dude because he's like yeah not sniping back he's like well this is a, right. <laughs> is a kid who's had like a whiskey coke yeah Luke Wilson is interesting because despite the fact that Owen Wilson is Wes Anderson's sort of creative partner mm-hmm. I think that Luke Wilson more often than not is the sort of Leonardo DiCaprio to his, uh, to Wes Anderson. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, he's even you know, more conventionally Owen. handsome than Owen Wilson. Right. He's, right. He's, he's the Chris Hemsworth. Right. Like, right. Yeah. He's well, kind of he's the got, hot brother. 
Yeah, well, and he's got he's got the long hair, and he holds himself kind of similarly, or can mm-hmm. hold himself similarly to Wes Anderson, which is why I think they work together so well for these first three movies. And and Owen Wilson, Owen Wilson always takes sort of a backseat, whether that's not being in the movie at all, or 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 taking sort of a, a weird side character. That's true. He usually is playing like the big character sidekick to Owen Wilson, or Luke Wilson being the more like almost like Tim Burton sad boy protagonist. Yeah. But what's but what's ironic about that is that Luke Wilson's career did not take off after Bottle Rocket, whereas Owen Wilson's did. And I mean, that's that's a side effect. That's sort of that Hollywood side effect sure. of like you were the lead of that movie. That movie didn't go. That means you cannot lead a movie. That's what that mm-hmm. means. Whereas Owen Wilson stuck out as a side character in a movie that was a failure, but stood out, which means that he can lead a movie. We just need to put him in a movie that's going to be a hit. And then that's exactly what happened. It's like Owen Wilson starts getting role after role. He's in Armageddon. He's in all of these things and really meteoric rise over the course of two years, right? Um, between cable, the cable guy and Armageddon and everything. He's like leading movies within like two years of bottle rocket being released. Whereas Luke Wilson, never really leads a movie outside of the Wes Anderson stuff. He's I mean, super ex-girlfriend, not, Scott. Is, the, is he the lead of that, or would you call Uma Thurman the lead of that? And he's the supporting. Unfortunately, I would call Luke Wilson the lead of that movie. Okay, okay. That was that was a mistake on everyone's part. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but like, but even that, that is like two steps removed from his role in like Legally Blonde, right? Which sure, is like, right. you know, it's it's kind of the same character. Yeah, he, he and, pops up and you love to see him, but he he never got like his Zoolander or his right. like Starsky and Hutch. Right, right. Um, I'm loving him on Stargirl though. He is oh, so good. good on Stargirl. Yeah. yeah. It's cool He's how they, really, really they both met in the middle and now they're both like supporting mid- middle-aged characters and superhero stuff. Yeah. I think that's fun in, in alternate universes. Um, yeah. And they would get another Anderson motif where Max writes a handwritten letter to Miss Cross apologizing for his boorish behavior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we get another Wilson brother during the opening or the breaking ground of the aquarium future man himself man i could watch a whole just animated series just set at this school (laughs) yeah i love the coach the coach is great embarrassingly i didn't really know that there was a third wilson brother sure Mm -hmm. and for some what is is his name tim what's what's the third wilson brothers andrew and man not even close i was so i was watching it and obviously luke and um luke and owen bear a resemblance to each other Andrew has a beard in this movie, doesn't look as much like him, but his voice sounds exactly like Owen. And I don't know why it hadn't really hit me before to the point that for some reason, my first thought wasn't, oh, this is another Wilson brother. I was like, did Owen Wilson ADR this character? So I'm, (laughs) I'm laying on my couch watching it and I'm just like on IMDb, like did Owen Wilson and, and I was like, oh, of, of course there's just another brother yeah, yeah. We, we talked about yeah. it because he is in bottle rocket but he looks very unwilsoning in that and you could yeah. easily go the whole movie and not catch that he's like the third wilson brother but yeah he's a lot more wilsony in this mm-hmm. yes in sight very and sound so. yes <laughs> the uh the aquarium fiasco gets fisher expelled the moment where like you see mr guggenheim yelling at him but then he walks away and you see the max is like crying is Great. I think the the moments that really stick with me are the moments where you remember that Max is only fifteen. Oh yeah, and yeah, he. I mean, like Rushmore, like he, like he says to Bill Murray, this is the thing that he loves more than anything. He wants to keep doing is he just wants to be at Rushmore Academy forever. Yep. But he gets expelled, 
October comes and he has to go to public school, Grover Cleveland High School, where he gives a speech. Yeah, like like the sh- like I think you said at the beginning of the show, Scott, that shot of him in a normal 90s high school is unlike anything that will ever be in a Wes Anderson movie. Yep. I also love and obviously Wes Anderson has such an affinity for fonts and typeface and design. Like so Future is his big font and that's kind of what Rushmore's in and then for Grover Cleveland we get this really big shot of their logo and it is if you were just to google like high school logo defont.com like that's the one that it is yeah it's perfect like the contrast is so great yeah yeah all of this stuff at Grover is really interesting because you know at first he's struggling Mm -hmm. right to fit in but at a certain point as with all things, look, and I and I know this. I was the perpetual new kid. I moved so much as I never had the same friends two years in a row. Like it was because I was at a new school every time. And so I think that that's where my sort of um, that that sort of magnet personality that I, I apparently have comes from is like I had to like evolve that or I wouldn't have friends mm-hmm. like it. I had to attract people quick. Or I wouldn't get friends. And I and I love seeing him in this, like, struggling. And then, just like he would anywhere, yeah, the kids show up. They all, uh, they're all, like, just, like, they, they attracted to him, like, magnets. And they he creates a new crew um, surrounding him and following him around corridors. And I, I love that. Yeah, we, we meet Margaret Yang. Yeah. Uh and it's it, it's another it's an and we it's not even the last time we'll see this in this movie but it's another Anderson motif of a character picking themselves back up again after a great failure and remaking themselves mm-hmm. and starting again. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting but we get the uh the the, the falling apart of Max's personal life. Uh yeah. we find out that he uh he like tells the bully that he got a hand job from Dirk's mom. And right. that's the only reason that he hung out with Dirk was because he had a hot mom kind of him sort of reacting and like puffing his chest out in front of a bully without thinking about the consequences, which I think is something we can all relate to. Yeah. Have you ever seen a movie that has the word hand job in it as much as this movie does? I would like a count <laughs> of how many times they say the word hand job. But isn't that the most high school shit it, ever? Exactly. Oh, 100%. When, when, yeah. Dirk, when Dirk is writing his hand handwritten letter in crayon, to Max, and he's like they were in the they were in the pool giving each other hand jobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's perfect. So it starts like this prank war between Bloom and Max, where like Max puts a beehive in in Bloom's hotel room. I love that Bloom respects it. Yeah, yeah. It's very like two <laughs> peers. Yeah, it's it's not no, like definitely. Dennis the Menace, like oh this little kid, like like liar liar or something like that. Yeah, he 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 he's, like, all right, I'm going to fuck your. Bike yeah, up. he he's kind of like he's like, look, I'm going to get you back. But like, I respect this. I respect you. I respect what you're doing, because you know what? Part of me knows I deserve this a little bit, <laughs> you know, and then as like children do, it's like, let's just take this to the 10th degree immediately. Yeah, yeah it escalates way too far. <laughs> right. Um, um, I forget what what exactly gets Max arrested. The cutting his brake lines. Okay, yeah, he cuts his brake lines, <laughs> and he gets arrested. Yeah, uh, I will say, nineteen ninety nine Scott 
thought that people snuck into hotels wearing like tuxedos a lot more often than they do in real life. (laughs) Very true. Because like between this and Fight Club, I was like, well, this must happen a lot. Like, (laughs) Like quick, man. Yeah. The shot of of, of Max coming out of the the hotel room in the uniform is great. Yeah. Yeah. With the gum on the, mm-hmm. yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, we get a Fall Out Boy song. Yeah. He just made my list of things to do today. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that True. is an amazing line. It is. Oh, there, that's, and not the, the first Fall Out Boy in the movie with friends like you who needs friends. Good catch. Missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that era when everything oh, was just, yeah. every song title had 16 words in it for yeah, sure. Yeah. Of it course. A, it was a fun time. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm going to pop a cap in I his ass. It. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> so Max visits his son or his, his mom's grave where Bloom is there. Uh, we get another classic line. She's my Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, yeah, Max just kind of lays low for a while. It's cool. It's it's like uh, it's like Max in retreat. He's he's like in exile. He's exiled himself yeah. from everything. Um, going There's that scene when he's using the phone at school that I just I was I was just instantly infuriated by of like the idea that he's like on the phone that guy's like you got a phone pass and I'm just like is this fucking prison let the kid use the phone <laughs> oh, yeah. like what are you talking about phone pass uh high school drove was, me crazy high school was crazy I mean like yeah the lack of mobility that you had yeah, it's it's kind of jarring to think about like, wow, yeah, you really couldn't just like get up and go to the bathroom or no. someone would keep track of how often you would go to the bathroom. It's infuriating. I was homeschooled. In oh, high school. cool. So oh. every movie about high school, Got it. whatever yeah. the most recent movie I watched about high school, I go, I guess that's what it was like. It must have been like <laughs> that. <laughs> I guess that's what's happening. I don't remember. Yeah. Well, like, I don't think I don't remember phone passes, but like, I 100 percent believe that that yes you know yeah and you know can't imagine i was if you were a girl and had to always wonder about not not even what you were wearing but like what someone would think about what you were wearing right you know right mm-hmm. Ugh, goddamn nightmare yeah we, we go we go to christmas dirk comes and uh ask for a haircut he gives max a swiss army knife it's all great uh mr guggenheim had a stroke he goes to visit mr guggenheim <laughs> And this is one. This is one of the greatest things. This is Brian Cox at the top of his game. Yeah. He, he goes in and he's like, "Hi, Mr. Guggenheim." He's like, and he wakes up. He's like, "What do you want?" <laughs> it's the first so time he's spoken in two days. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah, I think that's the secret sauce of the movie. Is like, and I think what Hollywood saw in Wes Anderson that maybe they didn't see in filmmakers like Soderbergh or even like Paul Thomas Anderson is he's like Peanuts it can go deep and metaphysical and philosophical, but it's also very warm and the laughs are very big hearted. And it's, I think why, why this movie had such the crossover success that it did. In my personal opinion, this is the funniest Wes Anderson movie in mm. terms of, it just makes me laugh the most. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the part where they meet in the hospital elevator and it, it, like Bloom having a black eye from his sons hitting them. And he's like, I can't don't even I can't even tell them apart anymore. That, that's like really funny and really sad at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. For, that's how little I care about my kids. I don't even know which one hit me. And he still isn't mad at them. He's like, I don't blame them. I cheated on their mom. <laughs> the lighting of the second cigarette 
while you're still smoking the first is such a great sad oh, sack just God. like symbol yeah it's a big yeah this is him at the top again bill murray at the top yeah. of this game of yeah. just 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 so sad yeah oh so yeah we get the, the scene that we alluded to at the beginning of the show uh max pretends to get hit by a car climbs up mrs cross or miss cross's roof the part that took my breath away, I don't know why, but he, without taking any of his wet clothes off or his shoes, gets in the bed of her dead husband. Mm. Yeah. So this is where it happens. While, like, immediately leaning, knowing exactly where her boom box is to put the tape in to play the tape. Yeah. Just <laughs> such a, all in one fell swoop. Yeah. Like, such a little shit. Yeah. And yeah. it's great. I mean, yeah, because I, it's, it's like the movie, I think, knows and Anderson knows looking back like, yeah, this is he, he was a little shit. I was a little shit like boys can yeah. be totally yeah. calculating. And I know exactly I'm going in with set intentions. But then there's a moment where he's like, what do you think was going to happen? I think we're going to have sex. And he you realize right. he doesn't know. Like right. you're talking about. It's it, it's a real like like you know you know not to not to quote the Joker. I was but just like, about to. I know exactly. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a it's a real like you know dog chasing cars. Like once you got you wouldn't know what to do. The dog doesn't yeah. know what to do with it once you get the car. And yeah, what I love about this scene is the final insult of Miss Cross saying, "You know what? You and Herman deserve each other. You're both children," and she's right. And mm-hmm. he listens to her. They do deserve each other. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not also a coincidence, not an, an accident that we never see Bill Murray and Olivia Williams being charming and cute together. Because like just just the one like carrot scene. Right. Yeah. Just a little bit. Just yeah. a, just a little and bit. And I'm free to believe it. Like, oh, OK. I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Like the spark is there and that's it. Yeah. That's all we need. Yeah. But the movie was about the two of them coming together. Mm-hmm. Or not just the two of them. But yeah, like that. That is when the movie really wraps itself is when like these two help each other and like they're they're working out at the factory mm-hmm. and they're biking together oh yes incredible <laughs> I did it, that. <laughs> yeah it's really beautiful and again it, it, it's remaking yourself after a failure or or it reminds me a lot of bottle rocket where at the end we're digging like wow we really did it didn't we and it's like what what did you do <laughs> right but like they became right. friends and um we come to the climax where it's the premiere of uh Oh, look, oh God. yeah, I really love the scene where he snipes the bully <laughs> and shoots the bully in the face and then tosses him a script. And it's like, I always wanted to be in one of your fucking plays. It's I know. I know. Ah, it's, <laughs> it's, um... Yeah, we get a full on Star Wars Han Solo moment. There. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, like of like you can turn your bully. And and so we, we get the, the play. The play's amazing. Uh, oh, man. The production design is great. It's so funny. <laughs> It's gore that it's stunning. Yeah. <laughs> Truly just watching that, just even just outside of the movie, just imagining seeing that it's just so yeah. beautifully put together. The shot yeah. of Bill Murray having tears in his eyes at the end. Oh my God. <laughs> I was just going to mention it. It's amazing. It's incredible. Well, we established at the beginning of the movie that he was in Vietnam with one of the greatest exchanges <laughs> followed by an immediate cut ever, which was, were you in the shit? Yeah, I was in the shit cut almost the moment like the sound is like the the, on the t we cut away from that yeah so that coming back is nice it's it's yeah it's kind of it's beautiful and really funny at the same time is that this this they're they're performing this play with such conviction that it's making him emotional and think about being back in nam but they're all like 11 (laughs) (laughs) and you I love out of context lines that we don't know anything that came before. So him just like 
will you marry me at the end to <laughs> yeah. her pointing the gun at him, which obviously out of context doesn't make any sense to us, I think is so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, we get the rap party, uh, which is really beautiful. We get uh, returning player uh, Kumar Padilla. Uh, mm-hmm. He gets a very memorable line, best play, uh, best play ever, man. <laughs> uh, everyone's there. And like. I had for, the, the little bo- all the little boys like just staring at the pictures of naked women yeah. on the, in the set. <laughs> on the set. It's just it's really like beautiful moment after beautiful moment of like all these different characters that were connected to Max in different ways coming together. And we get a needle drop that I had completely forgotten about. So it really like hit me in the feels was uh, uh, Brad's Ooh La La, which mm-hmm. is a song about nostalgia, quite literally. Like, I wish I knew what I knew now when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to that really, that mythic screening of Bottle Rocket, where like all of Wes Anderson's future contacts were just in one roof. I think the older I get, it's like, yeah, that's what it's about. It's like getting the people, all the people you love under one roof and dancing. And yeah. yeah and yeah. It's such a trope now, which is, I don't know how to end my movie. I'm just going to have everybody dance. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure we could sit here and name a dozen movies that just end with some sort of dancing sequence. Sure. But it's very earned in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's very, it, it's a really perfect way to end it. I think for, for a lot of the reasons that you're, that you're saying, Nick. And then also, of course, uh, Miss Cross and Max sharing a dance is really, really sweet. Like, they arrive in this very sweet and i mean you know you can kind of the like to lean into sort of the motherly like the mother son dance at the end like how like it's very sweet and platonic feeling like we we get the sense that he's very much moved on mm-hmm. yeah he's he's it, and we're going back to his speech at the beginning of the show where he's like this is dedicated to you know uh the the husband of olivia williams a friend of a friend it's such a sweet like not big showy moment of just like hey like i see you like mm-hmm. i see you as a yeah. person thank you for helping me grow as a, as a little boy <laughs> dedicated to edward appleby maybe the most british name yeah. ever <laughs> just made up by someone <laughs> oh yeah. who were you edward appleby <laughs> i i also love about this like this ending is just like the cavalcade of characters that we've met over the course of the movie yeah all show up to his play because despite the fact that he's a little shit who <laughs> who who makes most of their lives like more miserable they can't help but be charmed by this cop and like <laughs> are kind of rooting for him you know yeah like even brian cox who literally like slipped into a coma <laughs> like he's like <laughs> he's in the wheelchair yeah when he rolls yeah. in to the dance yeah you're like oh my god i have all the i I love everyone on the screen right now i didn't even know that's what this was leading towards yeah even luke wilson's there yeah for, for like, no for no reason <laughs> yeah but you know he's also rooting for this kid he's like you know like you just can't help it there's oh, something about him where it's like uh, yeah he sent me an invite and said like please wear a tie yeah <laughs> yeah it's uh. it's a beautiful sentiment of like you can be your most authentic self even if that self is like a little weirdo oddball that pisses everybody off and is sometimes really ugly and mean to people that even that person can be in a room full of people that love them. And yeah, it's yeah. Like, and I could totally see being whatever age you were in 97 when this came out and being exactly the movie that you needed. Yeah. Or even now in 2021. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Man, what a movie. What a movie. 
What a picture. What a picture. <laughs> Austin, it was so great having you on the show. Any any final yeah. final closing thoughts on Rush Rushmore and Wes Anderson? Yeah, I I love this movie and this is I think my favorite my favorite Wes Anderson movie, which is not in any way to say like it's all been downhill from here or to diminish all the incredible work he's done since then. But yeah, there's something there's something special about this one. Even being one that I, I I saw after so many of his other films, there's just something magical about this movie. There's something that I can't I can't quite put my finger on. I can I can identify elements of kind of like I mentioned. I I love how really kind of silly this movie is, and I love how rough around the edges it is. And but I think rough around the edges in a way that would suit this movie, but not some of his later movies. So I'm glad mm-hmm. how he's evolved and grown as a filmmaker, and and really obviously zeroed in on his style but yeah there's just something magical about this that it's tough to imagine this not being one that i revisit you know for the rest of my life at at some point it's just a really a really beautiful and and timeless film in so many ways that like you said it might have been exactly what you needed in 1998 it might be exactly what you need in 2021 and i think this is going to be one that stands the test of time and in in 2050 uh (laughs) i hope people are still watching it and talking about it yeah you got something you want to plug? Oh, actually, I do. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am working on uh, an independent animated web series right now called Blee Blump, and F- Blee Blump and Fletcher Moon Detectives. I made it so wordy that I can barely say it, <laughs> but we are, we're launching our first episode uh, October 27th, so depending on when you're listening to this, that is either in the future or the past, or today, for those of you listening on October 27th, 2021. Um, but kind of, uh, a side effect of, of COVID was trying to figure out how to produce projects with friends of mine who were scattered all, all over the country. And so we're making this kind of seven episode animated show and we'll see what happens. So at moon detectives on Instagram, if you want to follow along and see what we're up to, we're, we're very excited about it, but thank you both so much for, uh, for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Can't wait to check out the web series. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> duelinggenre.com slash support gets you uh, to our uh, Patreon page for as little as $5 a month. You get three bonus podcasts a week per week. That is 12 bonus podcasts a month, uh, roughly. So that's a lot of stuff for $5. Um, so check that out. That's duelinggenre.com slash support. We really, uh, we really, we're grateful for everyone who um, supports the show that way. Uh, but you can also, if you don't want to spend any money, leave us uh, uh, Apple Podcast reviews because apparently that helps the algorithm, helps people find the show, that sort of thing. Please, only five star reviews. I know that that's like gaming the system <laughs> or whatever, but like literally anything below a five star, and there's like no point because um, it just doesn't do anything to uh, <laughs> add to like whatever stupid algorithm Apple has. So leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate everyone who does that. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week with the Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, Bye, everybody. I wish that-